0: Ideas matter, ideas matter. This is Dialogue. Hello and
1: welcome to Dialogue. The 2023 Paris Peace Forum is taking place in Paris with the theme of seeking common ground in the world of reverie. The forum this year aims to find efficient responses to the urgent challenges of our time, from climate change to cybersecurity and outer space governance. What common ground are we trying to seek in this increasingly polarized world, is it still possible to find common ground in an endless rivalry? To discuss these issues and more, I'm glad to be joined by Justin Weiss, Founder and Direct General of the Paris Peace Forum. Welcome to Dialogue, Justin. We know there are a lot of uh, forums, you know, dialogues like the um, you know, Shangri-La Dialogue, like the UN General Assembly, Munich Security Conference, and we have Paris Peace Forum. So, what makes... This, the Peace Forum stand out? So, it's uh, so welcome. First, uh, welcome to Paris. Uh, really glad
0: to have you uh, here. Um, it's not only a dialogue, that is, we have people from around the world, from north and south, from east and west. We have heads of state and government. We have people from the private sector, people from NGOs, from foundations, etc. It's a multi-actor meeting. And it's not just a dialogue. It's a place where we work on initiatives, projects, coalitions, etc. We try to make a difference. We don't have, among the 90 sessions that will happen during the two days of the forum, we don't have one that is just to discuss about things, which is always useful, but sometimes doesn't go very far in changing the world. What we're trying to do is to change the world and we try to align forces, forces of governments, of the private sector, of civil society, in order to make a difference whether it's on critical minerals, whether it's on climate, whether it's on refugees, on global health, on artificial intelligence and other issues. We try to make progress in setting norms, in identifying which types of political organizations should be put in place to try to mobilize resources, etc., in order to make progress in global governance.
1: Mm-hmm. Well we know this is the sixth edition of the Paris Peace Forum, uh, so what's the agenda? And uh, we know that the theme for this year, you guys have chosen, is um, uh, you know seeking common ground in the world of rivalry. Why such a theme? So every year we have a global slogan or a theme that encapsulates
0: the spirit of what we, we do. It doesn't cover everything we do, but it gives the flavor of the year if you like. And this year we chose... Uh, So this uh, uh, slogan you mentioned, uh, seeking common ground in a world of rivalry, um, because we're more and more concerned that geopolitical competition uh, is making it impossible to do cooperation. In other words, the exacerbated competition that we see, especially between the U.S. and China is making it harder and harder to get agreement on coordination, on cooperation, on issues that, however, we all depend on. Climate, uh, disappearing biodiversity, global health, etc. So what we're trying to do this year is uh, create spaces of uh, work, if you'd like, where we have all the uh, parties uh, uh, convened and where we're able to put aside this geopolitical competition in order to make progress on these issues that uh, gather us all.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, common ground. Uh, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what, what kind of common ground? You mentioned climate change. I think it's easy to understand. Everybody know, basically, you know, aware of that, the risks we are facing. We need to work together. That's a common ground. But when it comes to the other, you know, challenges, like in Gaza, the crisis there and the Ukraine crisis, uh, do you think we are able to find a common ground? So from the beginning, the forum was not conceived
0: to focus on hot crises, if you'd like. We're not doing crisis management and we're not really equipped to do the sort of quick diplomatic maneuvers that would be necessary to address crises like the Ukraine one or the uh, Gaza one. So what we focus on is building, I would say, even crafting peace in the longer term that is better organizing the world so that these issues of cyber security, of climate refugees, etc. don't come back uh, to haunt us five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now. This said, we're also addressing uh, this crisis because of the uh, magnitude and the impact it has on the rest of the international system. It will not go very far because uh, now is still uh, uh, the, the time for uh, the uh, um, um, armed uh, um, operations in, in, uh, in Gaza, but at least it sort of sparks uh, some hope for the future that we can get back to this negotiation on the two-state solution, which is the only uh, foreseeable uh, solution of, the, of, of, this, uh, of this question. So we're doing the long term, mostly, but we're also uh, taking a bit of time to try and do our part on this tragedy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, speak of the long-term uh, effects of efforts and also, you know, speak of this um, you know, relationship uh, among especially the big powers, uh, you know, the relationship like uh, between China and France. Uh, you were with President Macron uh, when he was in China in April. Uh, share with us your impression, you know, how do you evaluate the outcome of the visit? So I think the outcome was very positive. First of all, it should,
0: be, uh, it should be mentioned that it was the first time really after COVID, right? After all these years where leaders didn't meet. So it was important in itself to sort of have a, a, a you know, full-blown discussion. And President Macron had uh, uh, two long opportunities uh, to uh, meet with, uh, with President Xi. Uh, uh both um both in, in Beijing and in Guangzhou. And so that was important. Uh second, I think one of the important outcomes of the uh trip was to um get China's cooperation on trying to solve one of the most important issues of our time which is how do we finance how do we find resources for financing both the SDGs, the uh, Uh, development goals and uh, also the green transition. So how do we change the international financial system so that it's able to produce enough resources not only to uh, face uh, the challenges of uh, uh, current uh, uh, weather catastrophes, etc., but also help less developed countries to finance the green transition. And so that resulted in the June summit where China was represented by uh, the prime minister and uh, it led to uh, a number of discussions around this uh, Paris pact for people and planet. That is to say, uh, increasing the resources that the international community has for poverty and for climate and uh, you know, better organizing the tools we have, whether it's private sector financing, uh, whether it's uh, uh, debt suspension closes in, the, uh, uh, in lending money, et cetera. So that was one of the really good outcomes, I think, of the, uh, uh, of the trip by, by uh, President Macron. And then lastly, I think it was more on a bilateral level, uh, the uh, importance of, of keeping the people to people and the cultural exchanges uh, rolling after Covid has really frozen uh, everything. So that was another, uh, I think, good point uh, in this trip.
1: China also declared the end of uh, financing uh, basically uh, projects, uh, which is uh, coal-fired plants, um, along with this Belt and Road Initiative.
0: Yeah, yeah, so that, that, that I mean, there, there has been some progress uh, undoubtedly, but the fact is we are still opening, and it's a collective we, uh, but it's very often in in Asia, we're still opening uh, coal plants and that's really problematic. Uh, This must be balanced with the energy needs of the less developed countries, obviously, but there are other ways to do that are as cost-effective and energy effective as as coal power plants and so that's something we'll be focusing on. It's a good example of what we do at the forum, uh, gathering a coalition of uh, 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 private funds, uh, uh, international organizations, and government actors uh, to make sure we go even further. And then at COP 28 uh, in December uh, in uh, Abu Dhabi will be in Dubai, we'll be able to um,
1: uh, to make decisive progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you talked about you know China France relationship. Um, uh, I wonder you know where are we now in terms of this bilateral uh, ties, uh, given the this impact of this pandemic, you know, three or four years, and of course, the, um, the strategic competition from Washington with China, and then the EU's policy on China, for example, de-risking rather than decoupling, but still there are disputes between the two sides. How do these factors, you know, impact or influence uh, France's perception or policy making on China? So, you know, I guess there's no doubt that
0: the relationship is not what it was 10 years ago. and the accentuation, I would say, of the geopolitical competition certainly has uh, had an imprint, has had an impact on uh, what these uh, relations are. The Covid period was not very good because it led to a reduction of the overall discussions and exchanges between, uh, between the, two, the two countries. Uh, this said, uh, uh, I think that the, the, the policy of de-risking clarifies things. No one wants to depend on others, uh, and that's a truth that has been uh, 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 that has been uh, um, with us uh, as long as great power competition has existed. No one wants to depend uh, on uh, other powers, and de-risking, I think, clarifies uh, relations, and also um, uh, I think makes it easier to have. Uh, Uh, discussions and negotiations on essential issues without being bothered by this dependency, whether it's on critical minerals or on uh, microchips uh, etc. So I don't see this necessarily as a big risk and I think it certainly doesn't lead to decoupling. Uh, One good example is the increase, not the decrease, of trade between the US and China that in spite of the uh, tensions of the last few years, has been uh, has been uh, uh, noticed. That is that there's been an increase uh, in this. Uh, it's around 700 billion, if I remember uh, correctly, uh, dollars uh, a year, which uh, is more than what it used to be. So, so I do think that de risking and the continuation of uh, economic relations can
1: uh, uh, can coexist and that they clarify things on geopolitical terms. But you know, other people would say, you know, when we talk about you know decoupling, derisking. Uh, it's a sharp contrast with previous times you know, where we talk about uh, you know, interdependence. We see interdependence or closer trade relationship that lays the foundation of a closer and a stable relationships. So are we seeing, because of the retreat of globalization, somehow we are seeing more risks mm-hmm. and more, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, maybe not conflicts, but certainly uh, not a closer relationship.
0: No, that I mean, I, I agree with you. That is, uh, we had a period in which uh, the sort of American dominated world of the 1990s and 2000s, uh, the world of globalization, I would say of happy globalization, it, it doesn't mean that there were no conflicts and no tensions, but by and large, the world was more open. Uh, as uh, the uh, journalist Tom Friedman famously said, the world was flat. That is to say, you could exchange uh, easily. It was a world that was largely uh, guaranteed by the American uh, uh, power, whether sea lanes or the opening of markets or so it's not security a flat animal. So, so no, I, I, you know, I, I believe it's it's very different. So let me give you a very concrete example. I, I uh, do uh, fly a lot, which is not good for my uh, 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 carbon imprint, but but which is necessary for uh, 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 making sure that the Paris Peace Forum uh, attracts people from around the world and. There are many routes that used to be direct and where planes have to do detours. So for example, to get to Beijing right now, uh, we can no longer fly above Russia. So the flight is at least two hours longer than what it used to be. Another example is when you go over the Middle East, uh, it's still dangerous to go over over certain parts of Syria. Uh, It's dangerous uh, obviously right now to go uh, above the Near East. Uh, uh, And so you see that the world of globalization, which was not only flat, but that also ensured direct uh, air uh, routes uh, is no longer with us and that there are many more uh, mountains or hills uh, in that world that make uh, that change globalization. It doesn't mean we have deglobalization, so it's not going backward or it's not uh, it's not exactly as if we were undoing what has been done during the 1990s and two thousand. but
1: at the very least it has stopped increasing. Of course, you know, there are talks of de-risking uh, here in Brussels and also in Washington. Uh, do you think they are the same? You know, because for Washington, it's really about uh, you know, their strategic competition, using their own words against China. Some would say that's a containment you know, against China to slow down the Chinese technology, slow down the Chinese innovation, but for, you know, there's, there's a reason for Washington to do that, because Washington wants to maintain its predominant position around the world. But for European Union, uh, they are not in, say, competition with China for global domination. Uh, do you see they are the same? Well, No, yeah, no. Um, I, here again, I agree with you, there are two versions of, uh, of de-risking,
0: if you'd like. And then there's, there's the specific question of microchips, which is, uh, which is different, which is really about uh, maintaining the advance because this technology uh, really is in, uh, in, in the U.S. and in Taiwan as we, as we, as we know. So that's a specific case uh, and on the maintenance of the technological advance uh, uh, one of the pillars of, uh, uh, of U.S. dominance, uh, yes, I, I agree with you. The EU position is slightly different. The EU position is to uh, have been burned by the Russian example of depending on Russian gas, which was largely a German uh, policy, uh, which was linked to the abandonment of uh, nuclear power after the uh, Fukushima uh, uh, incident that led Angela Merkel to decide uh, sort of in a rush uh, to do away with uh, nuclear uh, energy, which led to two uh, bad outcomes, uh, one could say. One was the increase of the use of coal and uh, Germany still uses a lot of coal about for about one-fourth, I think, of its uh, power generation, which is emitting a lot of uh, uh, um, CO2 um, uh, gases. And second, it also led to an increased dependence on Russia, on Russia's uh, cheap gas and the uh, uh, rise of uh, Russia's uh, I would say um, uh, uh, at least leverage on, uh, on Germany and on the rest of Europe. Once again it's the general uh, principle that no ones want to depend on uh, one uh, uh, other power and so depending on someone at 50 or 60 percent is fine. Depending on someone at 100 percent is not good because it sort of skews the relationship between the two powers because you know that uh, if the other power decides to cut off that supply then uh, then you're in a very bad position. And so, uh, even though the EU doesn't want to be dominant, that explains why the policy of, of de-risking was, was adopted and is now conducted.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, speak of that, I think it's a sort of related you know, um, President Macron once said in an interview that the great risk that Europe faces is, uh, quote, uh, getting caught up in crises that are not ours. And Europe must resist the pressure to become American followers. Was he talking about strategic autonomy uh, for the European Union? So sometimes, yeah, I mean the the aim of strategic
0: autonomy was always pursued by the French. Uh, Then we had a bit of difficulty convincing our fellow Europeans that it was something uh, important and meaningful. And over the course of the 2010s, Uh, it sort of more and more became uh, uh, more obvious to other Europeans that strategic autonomy was important. Uh, First, when uh, things got uh, bad uh, starting in 2014 uh, in Russia, but I would say also in the Middle East with uh, Daesh, with the resurgence of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in 2014, Uh, and obviously in 2016, or rather early 2017, when the Trump administration uh, took, uh, took office, Then Europeans, especially other than the French, realized that uh, it was necessary to make sure that Europeans could act on their own, something that the French had always advocated uh, for. And so it became more apparent that Europe uh, uh, should turn into a geopolitical force, not just a geoeconomic or soft power force, but that it should stand on its own, reduce its dependency, Increase its means of uh, uh, action, and so what uh, President Macron said during his trip was that uh, they we should not. He was very specific in his words, and so the message was uh, we should not be led by an acceleration of the uh, crisis that would be caused by uh, uh, American initiatives, whether it's uh, Speaker Pelosi's um, uh, yeah over Taiwan, Speaker Pelosi's uh, trip to Taiwan, or other initiatives that are let's say, unhelpful and uh, uh, pour, uh, pour oil on the fire. That's certainly not good, but on the other hand, what President Macron repeated, especially uh, after these remarks, is that uh, he, he is very much in favor of the statu quo. And so the statu quo should not be changed either by one side or by the other.
1: Well, uh, we are going to have um, you know, the general election in, in the United States. You talked about the Trump administration. Yeah. Now people say um, there's a real chance of uh, you know, another term of Trump presidency. Do you think Europe uh, is ready for a second term of Trump? Uh, it's, it's hard to say. On the one hand,
0: uh, it will surprisingly come as a shock for many, even though we had Trump for four years. Uh, and many are clinging to the idea that, of course, President Biden will be re-elected, which is statistically the most likely, but we've seen so many surprises in the recent years. Yeah, it's changing and there will be many things happening between now and, uh, and, uh, and November 5, 2024, which is the date of the, of the election. Uh, others in Europe are uh, you know, making the point that it's exactly the reason why Europe should be more independent, have more strategic autonomy, uh, make sure that it doesn't rely 100% on other countries, including the US, including for its security. And we know that President uh, Trump had asked his advisors whether the US could simply withdraw from NATO. Uh, that it's the type of ideas that he has entertained since the 1980s. So it's been 40 years or, or uh, uh, or more, that he has uh, criticized uh, NATO as an alliance and that he thinks that uh, Europeans are taking advantage of the U.S. in terms of the security. It sort of triggers among Europeans uh, the idea that uh, if the U.S. Uh, somehow withdraws or starts being less present uh, in Europe, then they should step up. and. Uh, honestly it's something that France has advocated for, not the exit of the US, uh, let me be very clear on that, but the fact that uh, even with the presence of the US we should be more reliant on our own forces including uh, from the security point of view and if such a thing happens that President Trump is re-elected and he uh, has a policy of uh, being less present in Europe then we should be able to step up and uh, make uh, Europe more uh, resistant and more standing on its own. I would simply add uh, add to conclude that Europe has been tested many times. If you see uh, the uh, sort of scenario, it's always the same one. That is to say, um, it starts with a crisis, Europe is disunited, Europe doesn't react, and then the magnitude of the crisis forces European to unite. It takes some time, there are 27 countries, it's not easy. But in the end, Europe is always reinforced by crises, not weakened by them. And so you see a stronger Europe now than you see 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And so should something like a Trump re-election, uh, bad news like that happen, I have no doubt that Europe will be able to react and to strengthen
1: in the face of that adversity. We'll get more stressed. Yes. And you once said that you know geopolitics is slowly killing global governance. You said you know U.S., China, and Europe should show more leadership, and propose a third way to reach a stable triangle of relations, rather than bilateral confrontation between Beijing and Washington. Uh, would you please elaborate more on that? In the
0: twenty-first century, we slowly realized that there was another danger, which was not internal, which was because of the humans fighting among themselves, but rather because of their environment. Because climate change uh, was was evolving, was uh, uh, arriving at such a pace that it could endanger the ship itself. It's like an iceberg coming and we are more and more focused on fighting one another rather than looking at the iceberg uh, uh, coming in the uh, direction uh, uh, where the ship is is headed. And that's the illustration of uh, geopolitics killing global governance. That is to say uh, our inability to focus on dangers that are threatening us all and climate change as effects in the same way from uh, uh, Guangzhou to uh, Cincinnati and, and Paris and Lagos uh, and rather concentrate on these aspects of rivalry and competition. And so the uh, 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 point about leadership was to say that the ability to separate these issues, to compartmentalize, if you'd like, the issues from the ones that are, have to do with competitions, from the ones that have to do with uh, necessary cooperation, because
1: we're, it's our collective interest and we're all threatened by the same things, uh, is paramount. If there's a Trump uh, administration again, I mean, Trump does not have much interest in the fight against the climate change.
0: I'm very worried about that. You're right uh, to point this out. That's why I, I hope that Trump is not re-elected, I hope he's not even a candidate, uh, because the uh, uh, judicial uh, proceedings that is involved with, especially the Georgia uh, case, will uh, prevent him from uh, doing so, uh, because it will be a setback for all of humanity.
1: Bilateral, the trilateral relationship, you know, I, I want to also have your comments on the recent development uh, you know, of this um, uh, rather frequent exchanges uh, of senior officials between Washington and Beijing. What do you make of that? And or, you also have this largest US delegation to the um, you know, China International Import Expo in Shanghai, for example, mm-hmm. you are seeing like a closer somehow or revitalized trade relationship between the two countries. How do you characterize uh, this bilateral ties? This is a positive
0: development, uh, the, what you, you just uh, mentioned, and uh, undoubtedly what we were talking about a moment ago about interdependence. Uh, can only go in the way of uh, increasing understanding about the two countries, etc. That has limits, that we've seen very interdependent countries going to war with one another. I'm thinking Germany, the UK, France in 1914, for example, very interdependent, lots of trade, lots of crossed investment, didn't prevent the war. So it's not a guarantee that there will be no more war, but at least it's one piece in the general uh, construction of Uh, better understanding between the two countries and I would say mechanisms for dampening or decreasing uh, 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 the most acute phases of uh, uh, crisis and and competition. So these are good developments. Once again, very high, higher than ever, levels of trade and investment between the US and China in spite of the competition. And so this gives a bit of of hope that leaders will be able to uh, Take this into control before we have a Cuban uh, missile crisis-type uh, event that uh, leads to these uh, 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 more frequent uh, discussions among the two superpowers.
1: Well, next year will be the uh, you know uh, the year of uh, culture and tourism between China and France to mark the 60th uh, anniversary of uh, the forging of the diplomatic relationship. Yep. Uh, an expectation, you know, how uh, probably how big a role that may play in terms of these bilateral ties.
0: It would certainly be, be important. i uh, uh, just for uh, on a personal level, I've had the uh, uh, pleasure of uh, uh, organizing both the uh, twenty fourteen and the twenty nineteen uh, anniversaries of these uh, relations. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. For Thank you for coming. Down.